Hey guys, happy Sunday. Getting closer to Christmas. Next next Sunday will be Christmas Eve. Uh, I think is that Sunday Christmas Eve? Uh, I lost track. Anyway, <laughs> next weekend is going to be Christmas. We'll just balance it out for that. I want to welcome everybody to the show. Welcome uh, TikTok. Uh, we're live on TikTok today right now. Just to let you guys know on TikTok, um, this is my iPhone. So uh, you guys, I can't see what you're writing, but I know you're there and I thank you. I really appreciate it. I do have a live goal today, and I'm trying to get 50 hot cocos. I miss hot cocoa. If you guys could give, give me some hot cocoa today over there on TikTok, I'd really appreciate it. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It might take us a little while, but we definitely can get to you. Um, and, and in the case that we can't get you right away, we have psychics on staff who could phone you and talk to you about whatever may or may not be going on in the, your paranormal situation. And they can calm the energy down for, for you until we get out there to, to work. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. We are broadcasting live on TikTok, Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube today. And I, I will be reading. Every Sunday I read from a paranormal-themed book. And uh, it, this one's a doozy. I read it last year. And... Uh, it never ceases to disappoint. It's dark stories of, of Christmas and winter holidays. So if there's something you guys think that you might be interested in all the way around, that's great because it's, it's a great book, and I'll be reading it for about an hour today. All right, you can find us on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. You can find us on YouTube under youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. You can also find us over at Twitch under Cal Haunts. You can find us on Twitter under California Haunts. Of course, over here on TikTok, California Haunts. And uh, we do have a, a, a meetup page, which is California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. On Facebook, we're California Haunts, California Haunts Radio, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Ghostly Events, and the Sacramento Sears, that's S-E-E-R-S. Okay, let me have a little sip of water before we get rolling today. And Again, for you guys on TikTok, you're not required to give gifts at all, okay? I'm not asking for gifts. If you find it in your heart to do so, that would be great. Same thing with stars over on Facebook. If you find it in your heart to do so, please do do that, you know, uh, YouTube as well. And I really appreciate it. I'm just trying to keep my expenses going and give it, keep, keep the show on the air. That's all I'm doing with it, all right? But I did, you know, some hot cocoa would be nice. All right, so let's get into this book. Um it's by, it's by author Sylvia Schultz. She's been on the show a couple of times. And I do do a regular radio show uh, uh, Sunday through Friday. We're live. And uh, I know there's times that I can't do it on TikTok because I have a live guest over here. So we're working on getting that done. Another announcement is we're going to be moving things a little away from Twitch uh, because I'm going to be able to start uh, going live on Instagram as well. So I'm excited about that. So, uh, Okay. So without further ado, let me get this book going. I have allergies, so my nose is kind of running. So let me get this going. And while this is powering up, it's old, like me, I, I want to talk about what I did today because I'm doing all this last minute right now with, with the advertising and everything for the show. Um, I put an electric wreath on my front door, and that is probably the first time in the history of this house uh, that there's been an electric wreath on the front door that with lights on it. And I'm real proud of that. It took me all afternoon to figure out how to do the wiring because my kitchen is off to the right of my front door and the hinge is on the front door on the left. So it took me a while to figure out how I was going to run the cords to wire it up, but it turned out really nice. So I'm real proud of it. Uh, my front yard work is done finally. I got it all done. Today was the last day, but it's raining. And when it rains, um, it knocks the power out out there. So unfortunately, hang on. Unfortunately, I won't have the power back on my front yard until Thursday when the rain stops. Kind of, kind of a bummer, but it is what it is. So let me call up my Kindle here. All right. So we can start reading. I do this every Sunday. I read from a paranormal theme book. And, you know, I would like to get at least 3,000 to 4,000 likes today. So if you guys over on TikTok like what you hear and see today, and you can double tap that screen for me, I would really, really appreciate it. Okay, let me get this going. It's done this. It does this all the time. Sometimes it'll do it. Sometimes it won't. Come on. Come to mama. Come on. Oh, there you are. And it just skipped on me. 
Like I said, this is an old tablet. It's still running Jelly Bean. That's how bad. Okay. So we're going to sit up and read for about an hour. And these are Christmas-themed. They're also uh, generic. I'm not saying generic stories, but spooky stories from around the world for the holidays and wintertime. So uh, sit back, grab, you know, grab your slippers and all that stuff, and have, grab your hot cocoa and all that good stuff, and join me for this great book by Sylvia Schultz. The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. And please, over on TikTok, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. Facebook and YouTube, show me some love. Give me some thumbs up. And uh, if you want to chat, we can chat over there because I can actually read the screen over there. Sorry, TikTok. But uh, I really appreciate it. Just double tap that screen, and uh, I really appreciate it. So here we go. All right. Also, real quick, if there's something in this book that you decide you don't like, that you know, it, 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 it pushes your buttons or something, Please do not, this, you know, this is a rated PG-13 to rated R channel, so please do not turn me into TikTok police or Facebook police or YouTube police. It's just a book, and I have full permission to read from the author. Okay, so here we go. The Astabula Bridge Disaster. It was four days after Christmas, 1876, and the Lakeshore Pacific Express was behind schedule. The westbound passenger train was on its evening run from <laughs> Buffalo, New York, there we go. To Cleveland, Ohio. A blizzard had swept through the region the day before, and mounds of snow covered the tracks of the Lake Shore and Michigan Southern Line. Two locomotives, Socrates and Columbia, had been pressed into service to pull the 11 car train through the deep snow. The locomotive pulled two express cars, two baggage cars, one smoking car, three sleeping cars, and three coaches through the dark night. The wind was still blowing fiercely at speeds of 40 miles per hour, limiting visibility and slowing the train to a crawl. The train was headed for the Astabula station, but it would never reach its destination. At around 7.30 p.m., the train approached the bridge over the Astabula River. The station was just a thousand feet beyond the end of the bridge. The engineer let himself breathe a sigh of relief. They were nearly there. Darkness had fallen a couple of hours before, excuse me, my allergies, and the engineer was relying on the cone of light ahead of him and the feel of the tracks underneath him. As the engine started across the, the Ashtabula Bridge, the engineer realized something was very wrong. The bridge was collapsing beneath the train. The engineer frantically shoveled coal into Socrates', Socrates fires, stoking them in a race against time, trying to urge the train to safety on the other side of the 157-foot-long bridge. They were so close, so close. But as Socrates reached the west end of the bridge, the engineer felt a crack and a sickening shift. The stress was just too much. The coupling between Socrates and Columbia sheared off, and Columbia and the rest of the train tore, tore free and dropped into the river, plummeting 76 feet to land with an appalling crash. The wooden cars were heated by coal stoves and lit by oil candles. The cars erupted in flames as they hit the shallow waters of the river, turning every car into a twisted mass of burning wreckage. The howling winter winds whipped the flames even higher. Passengers screamed for help as they burned alive. The engineer pulled Socrates into the station and called the fire department. But the deep snow had blocked many roads, and a painfully long time passed before rescuers even arrived on the scene. By the time the firemen could get their steam-powered fire engines down to the river's edge, many passengers had already died. Just like the engineer, the firemen could only stand and watch the cars burn. One of the heroes of the disaster was Charles B. Cook, the nation's first black telegraph operator. He stayed at his post at the Ashtabula Railroad Depot for 50 hours without a break, first sending news of disaster, then sending appeals for help and responding to questions from anxious families. By the next morning, 92 of the train's 159 passengers had died. Some say as many as 97 people perished. 48 of them have had been burned beyond recognition. Some 64 passengers and crew had escaped but were injured. That day, a jury was formed to determine the cause of the tragedy. After two months of research, the jury concluded that the blame for the accident rested squarely on the on Lake Shore and Michigan Southern Railway. Eleven years earlier, Chief Engineer Charles Collins had looked over an experimental bridge design submitted by another engineer, Amasa Stone. 
In Stone's design, each beam and truss would work independently of each other. This was a highly experimental design in most bridges. All of the components are designed to support each other. Bridge design of the time called for wooden braces to support the iron beams. Stone, though, insisted that the structure be made entirely of iron. The iron beams, furthermore, were to come from the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company, the ironworks run by Amasa Stone's brother. Collins reluctantly approved the design, and the bridge was built. Over time, the beams of the bridge twisted slightly with the weight of the trains crossing it several times a day. This slow twisting out of true out the so twisting out of true weakened the entire structure. Also, it's possible that air bubbles formed inside the iron castings as the beams were manufactured. This manufacturing flaw possibly caused the beams themselves to weaken in extremely cold weather, like the day after a blizzard in late December. The Ashatuba horror was a disaster not only for the victims who perished in the burning wreckage, but also for the men held responsible. After Collins testified about his role in the disaster, he was found dead in his Cleveland home from a gunshot wound to the head. A pistol lay at his side. The death was ruled a suicide, but two years later, his skull was sent to a medical expert in New York for examination. The expert found that according to the skull wound, it was possible Collins had been murdered. He could have been attacked by a grieving relative of someone who died in the train crash. More, om uh, more ominous ominously, he may have been killed by someone from the railroad trying to shut him up, to prevent him from testifying further. However, Collins had died. Oh, sorry. However, Collins had died. He soon found company. Amasa Stone put a bullet into his own head in 1883. Chestnut Grove Cemetery is the final resting place of the unidentified victims of one of the worst train disasters in Ohio's history. An obelisk 37 feet tall was erected in 1896 to honor the dead. The remains of at least 25 people are buried in 19 coffins in the cemetery. Photographers taking pictures in the cemetery have captured orbs and other unexplained anomalies, phenomena that, that are attributed to the restless victims of the, uh, of the Ash Tabula Horror. Charles Collins is also buried in Chestnut Grove Cemetery. His spirit has been seen leaning against the memorial obelisk for the train wreck victims, weeping for the lives lost because of his bad decision. TikTok, if you like what you hear, double tap that screen, double tap that screen, I'm trying to hit 3,000 likes today. All right. Everybody show me some love, happy faces, and all that good stuff. I'd really appreciate it. And I could, I could use some hot cocoa. The crash of MBR-224. The weather on the night of December 28, 1879 was foul in Scotland. Gale force winds howled across the crags, and the powerful locomotive MBR, Northern British Railway, 224, fought the elements as it steamed along the cold, rain-swept tracks. The train approached the Tate Bridge between Dundee and Warmit at speed. As it reached the middle of the bridge, the center span creaked and shuddered with the twin stresses of the locomotive above it and the violent winds all around it. The bridge suddenly gave out, sending NBR-224 and all its cars into the freezing waters. Seventy-five people died that night, including the son-in-law of the bridge's designer. Some of the bodies were never recovered. The locomotive itself was raised from the bottom of the estuary, salvaged, and put back into service. The Tay Bridge, too, was rebuilt, using some of the beams from the original bridge. The reconditioned locomotive was ominously nicknamed the Diver and many engineers were too spooked to drive it, especially over the rebuilt bridge. Despite its dire reputation, though, the diver remained in service until 1919. For years, witnesses have said that if you stand on the shore of the, fifth of the Firth near the Tay Bridge at 7.15 p.m. on an anniversary of the accident, you can see the ghostly lights of a phantom locomotive and hear screams and the screech of MBR-224's brakes as the tragedy repeats itself. The Iroquois Theater Fire It's the age-old question. What does a parent do to entertain their kid in the week and a half or so of Christmas break that comes after Christmas? The presents have been opened. The happy anticipation is gone. You can't even tell the kiddos to be good in case Santa's watching. At this point in the year, it's an empty threat. It's likely too cold to play outside for very long. One solution for modern parents is to take the kids to a movie. In 1903, the matinee performance of a play was equivalent 
There was such a bad name being performed on Wednesday afternoon, December 30th, 1903, at the Iroquois Theater in Ren on Randolph Street in downtown Chicago. The theater had opened just five weeks before, and it was magnificent. Excuse me. The day was bitterly cold, but the theater was packed for the hit comedy, Mr. Bluebeard. Officially, the theater seated 1,602 people, but patrons kept coming in, late arrivals, people who bought tickets for standing room, folks with guest passes. By the time the curtain rose to the first, on the first act, about 1,840 people, most of them women and children, excuse me, I hate allergies, were crammed into the opulent theater. One usher later claimed that there were at least 500 people standing in the aisles, and every seat was full. Another 400 people were backstage, actors, dancers, acrobats, and stagehands. The theater was dangerously overcrowded, but people were having a ball. The first act was a hit, and the audience buzzed happily during the intermission. The trouble began in the second act, around 3.20 p.m. A carbon arc lamp sputtered, and a spark flew off and hit one of the stage curtains. A lick of flame crawled along the edge of the curtain. Some of the backstage crew tried to beat it out with their hands, but the fire grew. The Iroquois was fitted with a fireproof asbestos curtain for just this sort of emergency. But the stagehand, Joe Dougherty, was filling in for the regular curtain man who was in the hospital. Dougherty couldn't remember which rope controlled the asbestos curtain. He fiddled with it for a while, trying to drop it. The fire continued to grow, and soon the theater was engulfed in flames. The blaze was quick and utterly merciless. One of the stagehands opened one of the big double doors at the back of the theater. This saved a lot of the cast members, but it was bad news for the people trapped in the balcony and gallery. The contractors who built the theater nailed the vents over the stage shut and left the vents over the auditorium open. The blast of cold air that poured in through the scenery doors mixed with the hot air in the theater and created a deadly tornado of fire that cannoned up to, up to the open roof vents above the auditorium. The fireball sucked the oxygen out of the air, burning and asphyxiating everyone in the upper tiers. In about 15 minutes, the fire that swept through the Iroquois Theater claimed 572 lives, most of them women and children, out for an afternoon of entertainment. More victims died later, bringing the final death toll to 602, including 212 children. The Iroquois had been billed as absolutely fireproof, but it absolutely was not. In the rush to open, the theater management cut corners, a lot of them. There were no fire alarms installed in the theater. There were no sprinklers either. Management had decided they were too expensive and ugly to boot. The, the supposedly fireproof asbestos curtain wasn't made of asbestos at all. It was actually made of cotton and other combustible material. And the theater's 25 exits, which architect Benjamin Marshall said would allow the building to be emptied within five minutes, those doors opened inward, not outward. Many in the audience discovered this to their dismay. And when firemen arrived at the theater, they couldn't open the auditorium doors. There were too many bodies sacked up against them. The firemen had to pull the bodies out of the way with pike poles, then climb over the stacks of corpses to get into the theater to fight the fire. To keep the audience from being distracted during the show, theater management came up with the bright idea of turning off the exit lights. Of the few exit lights that were on, one led only to a ladies' restroom, and another led to a locked door for a private stairway. Perhaps most tragically, the fire escape door behind the top balcony didn't actually lead to a fire escape. So when patrons yanked open the door, hoping to clatter down an iron staircase to safety, they found themselves standing on a platform, a platform that overlooked a 50-foot drop onto the cobblestones in the alley below. Couch Place was later rechristened Death Alley by reporters who counted nearly 150 bodies lying there. Some had been placed there by firemen but others had fallen to their deaths on the platform above. The ghost sightings at the Iroquois Theater are many and legendary, and they began even before the ashes stopped smoldering. Photographs taken that afternoon of the ruined auditorium show strange blobs of light and mist. In the 1920s, the old theater was replaced by the newer building, the Oriental. According to theater employees, the building is still haunted by the ghosts of those who perished there 
and by the memories of that terrible day. The stage curtain tends to stick when it gets about five feet down, just as the fire curtain did so long ago. One of the spotlights right near the location of the light that started the fire will flash and blink independently of the computerized circuits that now control it. The air staff claim to see people in the balcony, but when they go upstairs, there's no one behind the locked doors. And then there is Death Alley, which is often said to be even more haunted than the theater itself. People often encounter cold spots and have heard the eerie sounds of children laughing and playing. Many people who walk through the alley feel an ease sense of discomfort there, unsettling and creepy. But there is at least one person who is compassionate rather than creeped out, Ursula Milton Bileski. She leads Chicago haunting ghost tours, taking busloads of people to sites all over the city. She has been in the alley behind the Iroquois hundreds of times. She has told the story of the tragedy of hundreds. Hang on a second. Okay. She has told the story of the tragedy hundreds of times, and every time she has she is overcome once again by the thought of the 602 souls who perished in the theater fire. So, is her audience, both the people on the tour bus and those that still haunt Death Alley? A few years ago, Ursula went to the Michigan Paracon in Salt, in Salt St. Marie. While she was there, she struck up a conversation with a psychic medium. The two women were just chatting to pass the time. Quote, I hadn't set up a table with my books or anything, and I hadn't yet gotten on stage to do my presentation. This lady had no idea who I was, and we hadn't even been talking about much in the way of the paranormal. She didn't even know about the tours. Nevertheless, the medium told Ursula something that rocked her to her core. She said, you go to a lot of places in the town where you live, and you're with different people every night. At the time, Ursula was leading every tour herself, so this was entirely accurate. Then the medium continued. She said, at one of the places you go, the people are waiting for you, and they miss you. You tell their stories. Ursula's eyes widened. There was no way for the medium to know that Ursula was tiring of the weary grind of leading every single tour, of, of returning to the crime scenes and the haunted places of Chicago's underbelly night after night. There was no way for the medium to know that Ursula had taken a couple of months break from her grueling scheduling of tours. But the medium did know that the victims of the Iroquois Theater fire were aware of Ursula's devotion to their story. That's kind of cool. That's cool. That's cool. Again, if you like what you hear, double tap that screen. I'm trying to shoot for 3,000 today. That would be really great, 3,000 likes. And uh, if you can find it in your heart, send me hot cocoa. Love hot cocoa. The Monaga Mine Disaster. The worst mining disaster in American history happened on December 6, 1907 in Monaga, West Virginia. I hope I said that right. The Norfolk and Western Railway opened in 1883, resulting in a boom in the untapped coal fields of southwestern West Virginia. Blacks from the South and European immigrants poured into the state to take advantage of this new opportunity. Officially, there were 367 men working in the Fairmount Coal Company's number six and number eight mines that day. Unofficially, the number may have been much higher. Miners often brought their children and other relatives down with them for extra help. The explosion that ripped through the mines at 10.28 a.m. killed most of them instantly. Mining equipment was destroyed, and ventilation systems were heavily damaged. The tunnel ceilings collapsed, and the timbers supporting the roof were blown out. The number eight mine had the worst of the explosion. The concrete roof of the engine house was blasted into fragments. One piece, weighing over 400 pounds, was blown more than 500 yards. The official cause of the blast was never determined. Later, people speculated that an electrical spark or an open flame lamp may have ignited a pocket of methane gas or a film of drifting coal dust. But these mines were considered the best in the state. In fact, they had just passed inspection. The fan at, the fan at number 8 would force 240,000 cubic feet of fresh air into the mine every minute. During the October 6th inspection, no trace of gas or dust was found in, in number 8, and only a slight trace of dust in number 6. The explosion was probably caused by a powder ignition that went horribly wrong. 
The first rescuers measured into the mines 25 minutes after the explosion. The biggest threat to the rescues and to any man possibly left alive in the mines after the explosion and resulting tunnel collapse was the buildup of fumes. There was white damp, which is carbon monoxide, and black damp, carbon, monox- carbon dioxide, and nitrogen. And either one of them could kill a man just as dead. The dead miners that res- the rescuers found had tried to cover their faces with their jackets and other clothing. This would have helped filter out particle matter. But it was no help at all when there was no oxygen to be had. Death came so suddenly that many victims were found sitting upright, overcome by deadly gases, too quickly even to slump to the ground. The rescuers could only stay in the mine for 15 minutes at a time. Since the ventilation equipment had been badly damaged, there was no way to pump out bad gases or to bring in fresh air. Of the 367 men on the mine's books that day, 362 of them died. One Polish miner was rescued, and four Italian miners managed to escape. Many of the Italian miners came from the village of San Giovanni, of San Giovanni in Fiore, in Italy. In 2003, the village erected a memorial to commemorate the disaster. The inscription reads, I can't do this, okay? <laughs> it's in Italian. I'm not even going to make it. I'm not even going to try. Here it is. In, okay, here it is in English. Lest we forget the 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 Calabrian miners dead in West Virginia, USA. The sacrifice of those strong men shall bolster new generations. Monoga, Monoga, right. December 6, 1907, Sam Giovanni and Fiori, 2003, and in 2007, the centennial anniversary of the tragedy, the Italian region of Molise presented a bell to the town. It now sits proudly in the Monoga town square a reminder of lies lost from half a world away. Next, the Union Stockyard Fire. Chicago is famous for being the city of big shoulders, a leader in industry of all kinds. Major railroad hubs, center for manufacturing, hostess of vibrant culture. Chicago also has the nickname Hog Butcher of the World. From the Civil War to the 1920s, more meat was processed in Chicago than in any other place in the world. Construction on the famous Union Stockyards began in June 1865, and the yards opened on Christmas Day of that year. The complex encompassed 450 acres of land. On the site were animal pens, haylofts, barns, slaughterhouses, packing plants, and refrigerated warehouses, all run by more than 100 separate meat packing businesses. The Union Stockyards was a messy, loud, dangerous place, made even more notorious by Upton Sinclair's 1906 expose, The Jungle. And on December 22, 1910, the stockyards became the site of the deadliest building collapse in American history, a title it held until September 11, 2001. Railroad tracks ran right through the middle of the stockyards, bringing in thousands of head of livestock for slaughter and taking meat products out. In addition to, bar- to barns filled with hay, there were other fire concerns. The buildings devoted to slaughter and meat processing were coated with grease. Refrigerated warehouses were part of a particular fire hazard. Not only were the wooden floors and walls caked in grease from animal fat, they also contained carcasses of hogs cured with saltpeter, one of the main ingredients in gunpowder. And conditions in the stockyards weren't ideal. Fire Marshal James Horan was greatly concerned about the lack of safety preparation that plagued the stockyards. Just a week before the blaze of December 22nd, 23rd, Horan had been at the scene of another fire at the stockyards, this one in the armory. One of, the chief, one of Chief Horan's men had been trapped by the raging fire. Horan tried to save the man, but pulled him out of the building dead. Chief Horan was known for being an innovator, as well as a fearless firefighter. He was respected for the many rescues he'd done, both of civilians and fellow firemen. He created several new fire companies in the city and pushed tirelessly for better water pressure. We can't put out the fire without water, Warren said reasonably. My men are as game as a my men are as game a lot as live, and they are perfectly willing to risk their lives to save property, but it's only fair that they should have mechanical help. The fact remains that a mere thing of flesh and blood can't put out a mountain of flames 
with his bare hands. The pain of the loss of his men still raw. Chief Horan went before the city council to ask for better water pressure at the stockyards on December 21, 1910, less than 24 hours before the monstrous fire began. The first alarm came in at 4.08 a.m., December 22nd. A faulty electrical socket in the basement of the Nelson Morris building, a coal storage facility on the 4300 block of Loomis, had sparked instead of fire. A night watchman called in the alarm. Just half an hour later, the blaze had grown to four-alarm fire. Within a few hours, more than 35 engines were on scene. One of these engines brought Chief Horn to the site. The fire marshal's expertise was desperately needed in this tricky situation. There were several unique physical challenges to fighting the fire. Fire Marshal Horn already knew that the water pressure in the stockyard fire hydrants was woefully inadequate. To make matters worse, many of the hydrants had been shut off to keep them from freezing. The nearest hydrants were 1,200 feet away from the blaze. Building number 7 sat in the middle of the stockyard surrounded by other buildings. It was right next to the railroad tracks, and a freight train was parked next to the blazing building. These obstructions made it impossible for the firefighters to set up their ladders. And the ladders were vital to the scene. Without them, the firemen could not get up to the windows on the upper floors of the seven-story building. The iron shutters on the windows needed to be opened to relieve the pressure that was building up rapidly inside the structure. The firemen knew that the cold air inside the refrigerated warehouse was heating up fast. And when air heats, it expands. If it expanded too quickly, the pressure inside the building would grow to a dangerous level. Chief Horn arrived at building number 7 around 5 a.m. He stood on the building's loading dock to assess the situation and direct operations. His fellow firefighters stood near him waiting to be directed to where they were most needed. At that moment, tragedy struck. The pressure in Building 7 released itself in a massive, fiery explosion. A wall, six stories high, collapsed into the, onto the loading dock. Chief Horn was killed instantly. Also killed was 2nd Assistant Chief William Burroughs. Three captains, four lieutenants, and 12 other firemen. The blast also set a nearby lard house, seven stories high, on fire. Although devastated by the sudden loss of their colleagues, the other firefighters nonetheless swung into action, simply doing their jobs. By the time the blaze was extinguished at 6.37 a.m. December 23rd, 50 engine companies and seven hook and ladder companies had responded. The bodies of 21 firemen killed in the wall's collapse were retrieved. In some cases, the bodies were in pieces. One man's hand still clutched his fire axe, but his body wasn't attached. The Union Stockyard's fire made widows of 18 women. Forty children were left fatherless. The loss of these men was made even more poignant by the things and the people they left behind. Twenty-one lives were cut tragically short. Lieutenant James Fitzgerald was supposed to have gotten married on, Christ on Christmas Eve. Lieutenant Herman Brandenburg had switched days with a co-worker because he wanted to spend Christmas with his family. In William Weber's pocket were found three letters to Santa Claus. Weber, the driver of one of the engines, had planned to go Christmas shopping for the kids at the end of his shift. Edward Shunset died on his 27th birthday. On Christmas Eve, he would have celebrated his third wedding anniversary. Morning firemen draped Chief Horn's beloved roll-top desk in black crepe, but not before they made a heartbreaking discovery. Throughout December, hundreds of children had written letters to the Chicago Fire Department asking if the firemen could make skating rinks in their backyards. Fire Marshal Horn okayed every one of these requests. On his desk was a memo urging that the rinks be poured before Christmas so that the kids could enjoy their fun during Christmas break. Three of the firemen were laid to rest on Christmas Eve, eight on Christmas Day, Twelve were buried December 26th, and the last one on December 27th. The families of the men were left to carry on, knowing that their loved ones were heroes, but mourning the cost of that honor. Here we go. 
The Cross Mountain, if you guys heard the swallow, I'm sorry, I could hear it in my ears real loud. The Cross Mountain Mine Disaster. Hugh LaRue normally considered himself a lucky man. He had a good job working in the Cross Mountain Mine near Bryceville, Tennessee. This was a modern, state-of-the-art operation, not one of those horrible damp mines you, you heard horror stories about. He had a good reputation as a dependable worker, too. He hadn't missed but a day of work at the mine, and that was the day his youngest child had come into the world. And he had a pretty obedient wife, who'd given him that child and more besides. They'd make a home together, a life together. Yes, Hugh LaRue sure felt himself to be lucky most days. December 9, 1911 was not one of those days. It was a Saturday, and Hugh had to go into work. Not that that was such a hardship. Like all the miners, Hugh rested on the day given for it, Sunday, and worked the other six days of the week. No, on the morning, on December 9th, going into work wasn't Hugh's problem. His normally pleasant wife had suddenly come over strange. His sweet wife was refusing to pack Hugh's lunch bucket. And why was that? Why? Because of a bad dream she had. When Hugh had woken up that Saturday morning, he'd found Mrs. LaRue already up, pacing the floor, nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. She told him she'd just woken up from a gruesome nightmare, a nightmare about his mind. In the dream, she and the children had been standing at the mine's entrance, watching as rescuers carried out dozens of dead bodies, all of them miners, all of them missing their heads. Hugh scoffed at his wife's fears. If every miner listened to silly dreams and fantasies, nobody, nobody, and absolutely nobody, would go to work. And then how would the bills get paid? A man's good reputation was everything, and Hugh had a reputation to uphold and a job to do. And if Mrs. LaRue wouldn't pack his lunch pail, then Hugh would do it himself. At 7.30 a.m., when the mine opened, 160 men were at the mine's entrance, waiting the rail cars that would take them two miles on, underground. But that morning, there was a problem with one of the rail cars, and only one car was in service. The car loaded up with fewer than 100 miners in its first run. The other miners stayed above the winter turn. Just after the rail car left, there was a roof fall. There was a roof fall near the miners' entrance. Some of the miners grabbed their lamps and walked back to the fall to investigate the noise. They could see the smoky cloud of coal dust hanging in the air from the roof debris hitting the ground. That was bad. What the miners didn't know was that the roof fall had opened up a fissure that led deep into the mountain's heart, and that crack led to a trapped pocket of methane gas. Freed, the gas seeped up into the mine shaft toward the men and curled up all cozy with the open flames of the carbide lamps that had been carried. The explosion shook the ground. Back at home, Mrs. LaRue relived her nightmare of a couple hours before. Only this time, she was wide awake. Fifty mules lived inside the mine, helping to pull the rail cars loaded with coal. The blast killed every one of them. The 89 men who had ridden the rail car into the mine were trapped. Several died in the explosion and the resulting cavens. The survivors barricaded themselves in side rooms, hoping for rescue. Most of them perished, suffocating on poison gases and lack of oxygen. And some deaths were quick. Eugene Alt managed to scrawl a last message to his loved ones on the boards of his makeshift barricade wall. I guess I've come to die. Air is not good now. Well, all be good. I am to pray to God to save me and all of you. Alt later breathed his last his last and okay, Alt later breathed his last in the foul toxic air. He was only twenty two years old. Wow. But help was on the way. The US Bureau of Mines had been created in nineteen ten, just the year before. Members of the Knoxville office arrived at the Cross Mountain Mine within hours of disaster. The men were the first team ever to mount a full scale rescue effort. Each man wore a self-contained breathing apparatus as the team moved carefully through the tunnels. And one man carried a birdcage. Inside, a yellow canary hopped and chirped, bringing the tiny bit of cheer to the darkness. Was, this was also the first mine rescue 
team to use canaries to detect changes in the air quality. As long as that little bird was fine, the air was safe to breathe. But the moment the canary started to droop and act listless, the men knew the air was getting foul, either with low oxygen or the presence of toxic fumes. Others helped with the rescue operations, too. George Camp, the superintendent of the adjoining thistle mine, took quick action. The two mines shared a common airflow. Camp got his miners out, then reversed a large fan at Thistle, which sucked the poisonous gases out of the Cross Mountain tunnels. Later, the miners at Thistle could tell exactly how well this plan had worked. They found dead rats littering the tunnels at Thistle that had been killed by toxic fumes pulled in from Cross Mountain. On the 89, of the 89 men that headed down in that first rail car at 7.30 Saturday morning, 84 of them died. Amazingly, five miners were found alive behind a hastily constructed barricade 58 hours after the explosion. The body of Hugh LaRue was not recovered from the mine. In an effort to placate his distraught wife, the hard-working, reliable miner, who had only missed one day at work in years, stayed home from the mine that day. It saved his life. The Bab Switch School Fire Double tap that screen. If you like what you hear, double tap that screen. Double tap that screen, please. Christmas Eve, 1924. Florence Terry Hill, the teacher at the one-room schoolhouse in Babswich, Oklahoma, had been busy all day getting ready for the school's Christmas program. The schoolroom had been freshly painted in preparation for the festivities. The walls still smelled faintly of the turpentine that had been used to thin the paint. Other repairs had freshened up the small building's looks. A windstorm had battered the school in May 1922 and broken several windows. The windows had all been replaced and covered with heavy wire netting to prevent both storm wreckage and vandalism. The wire screens were fastened firmly to the window sills with heavy bolts. Some folks who worked in Hobart, the town of which Bab Switch was a suburb, had to pull a Christmas Eve shift and had to miss the party. Even so, Lots of folks came to see their little ones perform in the program. 200 people managed to fit themselves into the 26 by 36 foot schoolhouse for the festivities. A tall cedar tree decorated with paper ornaments cut out by the students took pride of place next to the stage. Red and green tallow candles wired to the tree's branches led to festive glow. The program went, out without, went on without a hitch. Oh, and there was a bit of stage fright. But the young performers swallowed their butterflies and got up anyway, peering nervously out from behind the, be the, the bedsheet Mrs. Hill had tacked up to use as a curtain. Santa Claus, played with the help of a fake beard and a few judiciously placed pillows by 17-year-old Dowell Boulding, made his appearance right on time in a jingle of bells and a chorus of ho-ho-hos. He came up the aisle to the stage, stopping to pat a young head here and there, putting a present. On a desktop there. Santa and his helpers, parents on the program committee, reached the front of the room and began to hand out little bags of candy and fruit. Some small presents had been wired to the tree's branches, and Dow Bowling reached for one of them. The cotton trim on Dow's sleeves brushed against one of the flickering candles and caught fire. Dow tried to beat the flame out with a coat, but then reached for the stage curtains to try to smother the fire. It didn't work. In a moment, the team was enveloped, enveloped in a sheet of fire. The flames jumped from him back to the Christmas tree. The dry cedar ignited immediately. In trying to beat out the burning tree, one boy pulled it over. At almost the same time, the sheet curtains on the stage caught fire, too. The flames climbed higher, and the ceiling caught, and the ceiling caught fire. Then two gasoline lamps hanging on the walls exploded. People rushed for the only door to the schoolhouse, but the door opened inward, and the press of bodies made it impossible to wrench it open. Strong men hammered on the windows with their fists, trying to break the glass and make it to safety, but the wire meshed its job too effectively, and the windows held. Aubrey Coffey managed to kick one window loose, but that was all. Jared Reville, 17 years old, managed to squeeze through the open window. Clyde Hudson pulled him the rest of the way out. Aubrey didn't make it. The entire Coffee family, father, Elfie Coffee, and his wife and four children, died huddled together.
Aubrey held his fiancée, Vesta Jackson, in his arms. The inferno was over quickly. It took only three minutes for the cheerful schoolroom to become, a, to become totally engulfed in flames as the people inside shoved and pushed, trying desperately to get out. Bodies piled up against the one door as the fire blazed out of control. By the time the fire died down, dozens of people had died. More than half of the victims were children. Several Bab switched families were wiped out completely. The nearest big town was Hobart, and burned victims were rushed to the hospital there. Somebody's calling, and they know better to call because I'm on the air. You know? Ridiculous. And burned victims were rushed to the hospital there. But the victims didn't get help right away. Most of the folks attending the Christmas program... Just wait! Great! Hang on, guys! That's because the phone already vibrated, and I'm really angry at the person they called. So hang on, everybody. Really irritates me. And I lost my camera. Jeez. Well, that's it. Then I'll, uh, you know, that's great. Just hang on, you guys. This is why people don't, are, are, you know, I apologize, TikTok. This is why people aren't allowed to call during shows. So now I got things going. I got to make adjustments on my camera because some idiot decided to call. And it really irritates me because they know better. So let me get this going. Hang on. Bear with me. I'm still here, you guys. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm going to reboot up here real quick and get the camera back in. So just hang in there. Those guys are listening. Hope you guys can find me again over on Facebook. I apologize. That should not have happened. And I'm going to have some words with the person that called. All right. Sorry about that. So the nearest big town was Hobart. And bird victims were rushed to the hospital. Excuse me a second. There. But the victims didn't get help right away. I'm so mad. Most of the folks attending the Christmas program had drained their radiators before coming into the schoolhouse. 37 people were counted as missing after the fire. The next day, Christmas, 36 bodies were pulled from the cold, charred debris. That over a little bit. Gladys Clements and Claude Bolding were to have been married on Christmas morning. Claude, whose brother Dalwell Bolding was playing Santa, was badly burned, but survived. Dalwell was burned to death. Gladys was also killed. Gladys's sister, Juanita Clement Stevenson, had come from Michigan for the wedding, bringing her three-year-old daughter, Mary Juanita. They perished, too. So did two more of Gladys's sisters who were going to be bridesmaids. In Gladys's casket, there was a wreath with a card attached. The card simply read, Claude Molding. But Claude hadn't picked out the card. When Gladys was buried, her fiancé, Claude, was lying in a Hobart hospital in critical condition. The newspapers reported the fire with a near Victorian level of melodrama. One headline screamed, Death clamps bad hands on Christmas joy. The article about Claude and Gladys led with a somber sentence. And the embers of Babswitch Schoolhouse love lost and the embers of Babswitch Schoolhouse love lost its fight by two hours. Christmas Eve. The article told the story of the fire in pro-safe that tripped with historical sorrow. The girl's hand gripped her sweetheart's tighter as the blaze leaped higher. They fought together for a doorway to love's path. Love looked back into the flames longingly for the answer to his call. No call came. Another article tugged on the heartstrings with a photograph of a sweet little dog of intermediate breed captioned, the only living member of the Curtis family. Death has stilled the hands that made a home at the farmhouse of W.T. Curtis. The quietude 
that settled over the place the night that Curtis, his wife, and their two children left to attend the Christmas Eve celebration at the Babb schoolhouse is unbroken. They all perished in the fire. The reporter went on to describe the confusion felt by the little dog, who still waited at the farmhouse's back door. Man, this gets to me because I'm a dog lover. I'm definitely a dog lover. Unable to understand why his little playmates, Francis and Edna, no longer come to frolic with him. Two Christmas packages still lay unremarked at the, at, at the mailbox. Ah, oh, man, I got cords over here because everything fell. Honestly, it was a natural reaction to such a sudden loss. People did survive the fire, but that survival was not without cost. Speaking to the Oklahoman in the 1994 interview to mark the 70th anniversary of the tragedy, Mona Poling Forrester explained, For years, you could walk around Hobart and see people with their ears burned off and faces terribly scarred. It was an absolute constant reminder of the Bab Switch fire. 33 students had been enrolled in school, according to reports submitted by the Kiowa County Superintendent. When classes resumed several weeks after the fire, only 18 deaths were needed. The other 15 students died, along with their teacher, Florence Hill. The Bab Switch fire devastated the small community. The town can still be found on a map of Oklahoma. But there are no businesses there, not even a post office. The fire did lead to stricter safety regulations in rural school buildings, including mandating that doors should be open outward. Public buildings were also required to have more than one exit. The fire also created a mystery, a mystery that took 32 years to solve. Mary Elizabeth Edens, just three years old, was sitting on her auntie's lap when the fire started. Alice Noah snatched up the little niece and fought her way through the panic-stampeding crowd. She reached the window that Aubrey coffee loose and thrust the child through the opening. Strong hands grabbed the toddler, but Alice was still trapped. Alice Noah died from her burns the next day, but she survived long enough to tell Mary's parents that she pushed the girl out the window. And that someone had lifted her safety at first. At first, Mr. and Mrs. Lewis Edens thought that maybe Mary had been taken to Hobart by one of the rescuers. But Mary never turned up. I'm so sorry about the calls. This person is going to get it when I get off of here. I'm really angry right now. Perhaps the tiny body had been completely consumed by the flames. Her mother wrote in Mary's baby book, Our precious darling baby was taken from us. Is my sound off over here? Maybe they're not getting it. Uh, okay, hang on. Let me see what's going on here. One more phone call, and I'm about ready to blow some, blow some steam off here. Let me double check some guys. Okay, we're speakers, microphone. Oh, shoot. Everything switched. Maybe the audio was weird. It shouldn't have been weird. Okay, back to screen. So I had, yeah, the audio was weird, too, because I, re I rebooted. Okay. But Mary never turned up. Of the 37 people missing after the fire, 36 bodies were recovered. Perhaps the tiny body had been completely consumed by the flames. Her mother wrote in Mary's baby book, Our precious darling baby was taken from us December 24th, 1924, at the Bab Switch School house fire. Mary Elizabeth Eden's three-year-old, three-year-old, three-year, six-month, two days. The young mother's choice of words wasn't just the melodramatic mourning of a grieving parent. When Mary couldn't be located, her parents truly believed that someone took advantage of the confusion of the fire to steal their little girl. And that, incredibly, is exactly what happened. In 1956, the Daily Oklahoman, published a human interest piece entitled, Is Mary Ann Still Living? Mary's parents had never given up the search for their daughter. The piece ran near the anniversary of the fire in December. Okay, The article was read by the accountant, in San Bern, by the accountant in San Bernardino, California. The article reminded him of a young woman he knew, Mary Reynolds, who owned a dress shop in Barstow. Around Christmas, he, bought, he brought the article into Mary and asked her if anything that sounded old, old familiar. Mary was busy at her store with the Christmas shopping season in full spring, so she put off looking at it until after the holidays. 
Elmont Place, the accountant, was also a member of the Lions Club. He wrote a letter to Wayne Fite, president of the Lions Club in Hobart. I have among my clientele a prominent young businesswoman. She does not know who her father and mother were, nor has she been able to find out anything as to possible relatives. There was a good reason for this. Mary Reynolds had lived a life that was positively Dickens-type, even by Depression-era standards. She spent her life as a cast-off daughter of a viciously poor, abusive family with whom she had utterly nothing in common. Her life, until 1956, had been a hard-luck tale of Mary pulling herself out of abject poverty, making a life for herself against ridiculously horrifying odds. Both Place and Fike were well aware of the delicacy of the situation. The Edens family had spent a fortune on detectives trying to find Mary. Another disappointment would be devastating. The two men made discreet inquiries and soon had the evidence they needed. Mary Reynolds innocently told Place that as a child, she had been very fond of bacon rinds. Back in Oklahoma, Mary Eden's aunt, Bertha, remembers snatching bacon rinds out of the toddler's hand, telling her that they were bad for her. Bacon rinds is it actually turned out to be very good for Mary. She was reunited with her family and told her story on the March 27, 1957 episode of the Art Linkletter Show. There was an odd little postscript to Mary Eden's story, charming and eerie in equal measures. After the fire, the grieving community wanted to do something really meaningful to mark the passing of the seven young children who died or were thought to have died. In the blaze, right in the blaze. So in Hobart Cemetery, where many were laid to rest, they they planted seven trees, new life to commemorate the tragic deaths. The tree planted in Mary Eden's memory died. Okay, let's see. We've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to try and get through this last one, and then we'll call it a day. The Lawson Family Massacre. A cake on Christmas Day. What a beautiful festive way to start the holiday. Marie Lawson got up early that day to make her family, to make her family famous raisin cake. The 17-year-old Marie might have hummed a carol to herself as she mixed butter, sugar, eggs, flowers, and of course the raisins. She filled two pans with the batter and placed them carefully in the oven. The house began to fill with the lovely warm smell of freshly baked cake. As the cake sat cooling on the kitchen table, Marie's father was out behind the tobacco barn slaughtering two of Marie's sisters. Whoa! Marie never cut the cake. Within the hour, she too had been killed by her own father. On that Christmas day in 1929, Charles Davis Lawson, 43 years old, murdered his wife and six of his seven children. Charlie Lawson, a sharecropper, married Family Manning in 1911. The couple had eight children over the years together. One boy died of pneumonia at age six. Lawson worked hard, and by 1927, he had saved up enough money to buy some land near Germantown, North Carolina, close to his brother's farms. The property included a 200-year-old farmhouse and barns for storing and cutting tobacco. Curing tobacco. Sorry. The farmhouse wasn't in great shape. It needed some repairs. Charlie was pretty... Charlie was pretty handy, so he did the renovations himself, but there was an accident. Lawson was wielding an axe, which rebounded and smacked him in the forehead. Hard-headed Charlie recovered, but he was never quite the same after that. He'd had a temper before, but now it flared more often and burned hotter, too. A couple of weeks before Christmas, Charlie loaded his family into the truck and made the 13-mile drive into Winston-Salem. He took everyone out clothes shopping and hanged the cost. Then he had them, then he took, led them to a photographer's studio and had a family portrait made. It was, Charlie told the family, all part of a Christmas surprise. Charlie had his oldest son, Arthur. 16 years old, went out hunting Christmas morning. They ran out of ammo before they were ready to quit. So Charlie sent Arthur to the store in Germantown, about 15 minutes away to buy more. Arthur was still in the store when he got the message that something awful had happened at home. Charlie's brother Elijah and his sons had also been out hunting. They had stopped by the Lawson house on their way home to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. But everyone, 
Everyone at the house was dead. The middle girls, Carrie 12 and Maybell 7, had been shot and bludgeoned to death. They were found in the tobacco barn. Fanny was lying on the porch, her chest ripped to shreds by a shotgun blast. Marie's dead body was sprawled next to the fireplace. Again, if you're uncomfortable with this, just leave. Don't worry. You know, don't, don't turn me into TikTok or anything like that. I'm just reading from a book, okay? This happened like so long ago. Uh, Marie's dead body was sprawled next to the fireplace. James, four, and Raymond, two, had both been beaten to death. Eleven, four month, even four-month-old Mary Lou was gone, dead. And where was Charlie? Roland was fished Arthur from the store and brought him home, where he tried to process the sudden violent deaths of his mother and six brothers and sisters. Four hours passed, and still police and relatives searched the woods. Then a single shot rang out and Charlie's two beetles were heard filling the air with mournful howls. Searchers followed the dog's bang and found Charlie Lawson. He had run into the woods and holed up in a thicket. There, he had, placed, he had paced around a pine tree for hours, long enough to wear a path the snow down to the brown forest duff. Then he shot himself. The Lawson family murder and victims were all buried together in a single plot. There were only seven caskets to bury. Baby Mary... Lou was laid to rest in her mother's arms. The inscription on the tombstone that washes over the mass grave is a cry of anguished confusion. Not now, but in the coming years, it will be a bitter land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand. The massacre was so shocking that over the next five years, thousands of people came to visit the house where the man murdered his wife and six of his children. One of Charlie's brothers saw a morbid business opportunity and started charging folks a quarter to get in. People pulled up and wandered through the Lawson house in droves. Some of them were simply gawkers, eager to see the sight of a gruesome crime. But others were searching for clues. What could possibly make a father slaughter all of his children but one? What demons drove a man to kill nearly his entire family in cold blood? Then, turn a gun on himself. There was a theory, albeit one that gave many people the cold shivers. The theory was that Charlie had been fooling around with Marie. Yeah, Marie, his 17-year-old daughter, and had gotten her pregnant. Then he killed her, and everyone else to cover it up. Tragedy wasn't yet finished with the Lawson family. Arthur Lawson, the only survivor, by virtue of having been sent to the store for ammo, died in a freak truck accident in his early 30s. Some reminders of that appalling day remained for years. Some visitors to the house were cheered to see two small children playing in the yard, then horrified to see those same children in that last family portrait and recognize them as Raymond and Maybelle Lawson. The house was eventually torn down, and some of its boards were reused in a bridge that seems to retain the imprint of the crime. People claim that the bridge, too, was terribly haunted. And Marie's raisin cake was preserved as a pathetic reminder of innocent domestic safety. Souvenir hunters picked some of the raisins off, so the cake was put under a glass cover. It remained at the star attraction of the Lawson home, and later, it's in carnival sideshows. Eventually, one of Lawson's relatives took the cake home and buried it. Okay, we're going to stop there for today. Um, I have an event that uh, Nancy Matz and I are putting on an event in just about 15 minutes here. Uh, stream yard, you still have time to sign up if you want. Head on over to uh, the meetup page, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup page if you would like a psychic reading. And uh, we're looking at solstice and we're looking at uh, retrograde right now. And uh, it's, 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 it's up to a 10 minute reading with uh, medium Nancy Matz. And uh, you can ask any question you want. And again, that you can only get there by going to the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup page. And clicking on events and finding it there under, solstice, under the solstice. I want to thank everybody for coming today, and I really appreciate it. Tomorrow, uh, the, the, this week is going to be interesting. It's raining tonight. I was going to do, I'm, I'm still considering doing a drive around uh, for the Christmas lights going live. But if it's still raining too hard, and we're not going to do it because my assistant has to have her hand out the window of the car. I don't want my phone messed up with water and all that stuff either. So uh, we might hold off until maybe Thursday evening to do that. So we'll see because then the rain will be will be done on Thursday. So uh, hopefully that works out. So if you don't see me go live tonight around 8.45, 9 o'clock, then we're not going to go live tonight to do that because of the rain and you know, because of the weather conditions right now. 
So uh, keep checking back over here on TikTok and over here on Facebook for when I go live. Okay? Anyway, thanks everybody for coming, and I will see you guys. If I don't see you guys tonight, I'll see you guys tomorrow. We are going to be probably on around 5 p.m. Pacific. We're going to be uh, building the gingerbread house tomorrow, live on the air. So come on over and join us for that. All right? So I will see you guys. Have a great evening, TikTok, and I hope uh, everyone has has a great work week for those that are working. So let me uh, get this going. Oh, wow. Okay, wrong button. There it is. There we go. How do you get the right button? See you guys. Okay, same thing for Facebook. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow. And, uh, and for the people that signed up for Nancy's class, for, for Nancy's event, come on over. I'm going to open up the room, and away we go. And uh, we're going to start that at, five, at, at, at 6 p.m. Pacific. So I'll see you there. And if you still want to sign up for Nancy's event, feel free to go to the California Haunts uh, Paranormal Investigation Team meetup site, and you can do it from there. See you later. Have a great evening. And... Uh, Hopefully, I'll, hopefully, maybe tonight we will get to do the drive. Like I said, I don't know if we're going to get to do it because of weather conditions. So I'll see you guys later. Bye.